Okay, good morning everybody. How's everybody feeling? Did anybody get a good night's sleep last night? Straw poll, I hadn't found all three of you. That's awesome. The rest of us, not so great it seems. So, if you look at your notes, it says that uh, Gary Chapel is teaching today. Nobody is more surprised that that's not the case than me. I got a call earlier this morning about seven o'clock or so, and Gary just wasn't feeling good. And you know, with all the that we've been through with illnesses, communicable diseases with COVID and so forth, he just didn't think it was a good idea to come feeling like he was feeling. So he asked if I could fill in for him. I didn't say that I could. I said that I would. And so I'm going to give it a, a spin here. Uh, you know, the topic we're going to be talking about, we're still in this lesson series called The Truth About Lies. And we've been through a few weeks. The first couple of weeks, we just looked at the big picture of what's really going on. We found that there's an origin. There's a starting point for lies. Jesus called him the father of lies. Talking about the devil. We found out that there is a very predictable strategy that the, that the devil uses. By the way, can everybody hear me okay? Fantastic. What is that strategy? We've repeated it so many times now, I'm hoping that it starts to take traction and you can, you can draw it up yourself. It is deceitful or deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. It really is helpful. You know, we want to have the tools to stand our ground. We don't want to be ignorant of the, of the devil's schemes. And these deceptive, deceitful ideas, you know, if, if we could spot them easily, we could maybe stop them from sinking into our thinking. But because they are deceptive and they are deceitful, sometimes we grab onto them, sometimes without even knowing. And then it affects the way we process the world around us. It affects the way that we navigate. And it can derail our faith and other people's faiths. So far what we've looked at in this series, we've looked at the lie that it's all about me. It's not all about us. You know, God isn't a part of our story. We're a part of His story. It's not all about me. It's all about God. We've looked at the lie, God wants me to be happy. We've looked at the lie, my prayers don't matter. We've looked at the lie, God won't give me more than I can handle. And so today's topic, Gary chose it because it was close to his heart, is the lie that I determine, hang on, I define forgiveness. I define forgiveness. What was he getting at with that? Because I think he's on to something here. What he's, what he's saying is there's a lie that we sometimes believe which goes like this. I can set the terms for what forgiveness is, who I'll forgive, when I'll forgive, how much I'll forgive, and what that forgiveness looks like. Anybody with me? Anybody here have troubles in this area? As we go along, you may find that somewhere along the line, You've believed this lie, even if you didn't think you had. It might be a player in how you think about things and how you navigate. It means that if I believe this lie, it means that I think I can set the conditions and the limits of forgiveness. I can say what I will and what I won't forgive and what forgiveness means. Have you ever heard anybody say, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget? Uh... You think maybe they're trying to define forgiveness <laughs> for themselves? Could be. I'm not, I'm not saying that they're completely wrong. But it sort of sounds like they think they get to define what forgiveness is about. Okay, so what, what is the deceitful idea in this lie? I mean, we, we know that Satan's got a strategy. We just quoted it together. Deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires. What is the deceitful idea that believing I can define forgiveness for myself, what is the deceitful idea that that's planted in our, in our minds? I deserve it? I heard a few others. Try this one on for size. Just tell me if it's right or what, what your thoughts on it are. 
Forgiveness can be on my terms. Is that a deceitful idea? Yeah, I think it is. I don't think forgiveness is, it really works whenever we try to do it on our terms. We still try it nonetheless, don't we? Because this deceitful idea plays to our disordered desires. What's the disordered desire that it's playing to? How about pride? How about control? How about selfishness? Satan's good. The devil's good at what he does. Has this idea about forgiveness being on my terms been normalized in our society? Oh yeah. It sure has. So I think Gary was on to something where he chose this lie. Again, I think it's one of those that we can see the devil's fingerprints on. We can see that there's a good chance this is one that he uses and uses really effectively, not just on the world around us, but on us here in the church too. See, in our society, forgiveness is rarely even a part of the discussion. Have you noticed that? Our society affirms our right to demand justice, but it doesn't affirm our responsibility to forgive. When was the last newscast you saw whenever the talking heads were talking about, yeah, this is wrong, and we're, we've got to learn how to forgive it? I just don't remember one like that. In fact, most of what I have seen on the TV lately has been a demand for justice. And whenever you look at what they are talking about, it looks more like revenge and retaliation than it does Justice. Our society says that we need closure. Have you heard that one? We need closure, so it's okay to cut ties and to move on. Divorce is normal. Family relationships are discarded when they become difficult or when someone's feelings get hurt. That's been normalized in our society. Rather than forgiving, rather than reconciling, which is hard work, our society says it's okay just to cut ties and move on. And it doesn't matter which relationships we're talking about. Whether it's husband and wife, father and daughter, father and son, mother and son, daughter, relationships in churches, Public feuds, you see those coming on the time, all the time between politicians, right? Celebrities, you see all the fights. You see it between spouses and even churches. That's normal in our society, isn't it? The battle lines get drawn and dirty laundry gets aired all over the world, all over the place. How many times have you seen on Facebook... People use that media to fuel a conflict and to shame or bash and divide to to create sides. That's been normalized in our society. None of us are shocked when we see it. That's how good the devil is at getting this idea planted in us and in our society. We get to decide... How to define forgiveness. We get to decide and define when it's necessary, when it's needed, how it looks, what we're going to do. Stories of forgiveness do exist, but we hear about the feud far more than we hear about the forgiveness and the reconciliation, don't we? Forgiveness is a big deal for followers of Jesus. Has anybody here missed that point? (laughs) It's all through the Bible, isn't it? It's hard to miss that as Christ followers, forgiveness is huge for us, and yet we still struggle to define it properly. The lie that we can define it for ourselves is absolutely devastating. It devastates our faith. It devastates our families, our relationships at work and at home. And worst of all, It devastates our witness to the Lordship of Jesus. 
whenever we don't define forgiveness and practice it the way that Jesus did, how do we make Him look when we claim to be His? When people can't forgive inside the church any better than people outside the church do, why would people outside the church believe there's anything special about being in here? What kind of power does this Jesus really have? Because you guys are just as messed up as we are. Defining for your forgiveness differently than the world around us has always been challenging for followers of Jesus. Even the Apostle Peter struggled with it. If you flip over to Matthew 18, verse 21, I'm just going to read 21 and 35. You're, you're probably pretty familiar with this passage, so I'm just going to get the first verse and the last one. It says, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Do you remember the story that comes after that? Jesus says, well, it's going to be 70 times seven, which is not a literal number. What's that, mathematicians? 140? (laughs) No, no, 140. How did I get 140? Coral, what is it? Help me. 499, 490. Man, I told you, I haven't slept in a couple of days. So I'm not really sure what's going to come out of my mouth today. But help me out with the facts, okay? (laughs) We'll get through this together. It's a lot. You know it's not a hard number. Jesus is saying there's really not a limit to how much you need to forgive. This came as a shock to the guys. came as a shock to Peter. And Jesus tells a story of a king who has a subject who owes him an enormous amount of money. Could never pay it back. And this guy begs the king, please forgive me, I I can't pay it back. And the king says, okay, forgives him. But the guy himself had another guy who owed him just a little bit. And he went to go get the money back from this guy. The guy didn't have it. And so he insists that the guy, he's, he's outraged. You know, I want my five dollars. And you're going to go to prison until you pay me back. And then the king who had forgiven this vast sum of money hears about this. And how does he respond? He is furious. Jesus told us this parable because he wants us to understand we're the guy that owed so much we could never pay it back. God is the king who forgave us. And he says in verse 35, he says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. It's those last three words that stagger me. Because I can forgive superficially. I can make it look like I've forgiven without having done it from my heart. And it says very plainly, Jesus said very plainly, this man was handed over to the tormentors until, how many have, I don't, don't put your hands up. How many of us have been tormented and when we come down to it, it's because we refused to forgive the way Jesus does. You leave the doors unlocked and the windows open for the devil and his demons when you have something you won't forgive. When you have somebody you won't forgive. I don't know how else to understand Jesus' teaching there. There's more that we're going to get into that. We're going to keep coming back to Matthew 18 several times. But Jesus also, in Luke 17, the question comes up again, and there He says, seven times if a brother or a sister sins against you, and seven times in a day, and each time they repent, you must forgive. So someone kicks you in the shin. Man, I'm sorry. I really, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay, I forgive it. They come back and they kick you in the shin again. I'm really sorry. Do you, do you think that Jesus really says that at eight you can hit them back? I get the impression he's saying he's trying to teach something different. He's trying not to give us a rule because we'll look for loopholes if we get rules, won't we? See, and that's what was going on with Peter when he asked the question, what's he looking for? He's looking for a rule. 
Who knows what was going on in the back of his mind? Maybe he was anticipating trouble. Maybe he knew of trouble. <laughs> Someone he was going to have to forgive. Apparently, Jesus has been talking enough about forgiveness. It's got Peter's attention and he's worried about it. And he's wanting to say, what are the limits of my liability? How far do I have to go with this? But Jesus made it really clear. It isn't a rule that defines forgiveness. Forgiveness is defined by my relationship with Him. See, the lie that Satan wants us to believe is, I can define forgiveness on my terms. But Jesus says, no, the terms of defining forgiveness are the terms of our relationship, yours and mine. First of all, Jesus wants me to be like Him. How did He forgive? That's the way He wants me to forgive. I'm His brother. I'm God's son. And there's supposed to be a family resemblance. You know how kids sometimes look like their parents? I remember when I started losing my hair and I looked in the mirror and I said, Dad? And it was like, oh, you know, you sort of laugh and cry in the same moment. It's like, oh man, I can't deny it anymore. I'm, I'm really a part of this family. <laughs> We're supposed to have that same kind of undeniable, unmistakable resemblance to Jesus if we're followers of His. Secondly, forgiveness... Oh, I'm sorry, well, another on that point. Forgiveness is pretty much the family business. That's what God's about. When we became followers of Jesus, we were adopted and we were made a part of something much bigger than ourselves. Much bigger than whatever we thought our lives were supposed to be about much bigger than our nation. We're about what God's doing. And His family business, we've been added in to that family business. We've inherited it. And His business is about forgiving and reconciling, mending what's broken. Jesus wants me to be like Him, and Jesus wants me to forgive, my, forgive others the way that He has forgiven me. How has He forgiven you? Danny's Lord's Supper. I think you were, you were coming down this road. You were remembering, man, what have I done? I've blown it so bad. And I, I don't think you said it this way, but I bet you'd agree with me. You don't have to look 20 or 40 years ago to see the really bad stuff. I, I don't think I can look even deeper than 40 minutes ago. And I can find things that he's had to forgive me of. Am I alone? Has He forgiven us? How has He forgiven us? Did He forgive us with a finger? His fingers crossed behind His back? I have done that before. Did He say it and not mean it? I've done that before. Did He forgive me but hold a grudge? I don't think He did that either. How do I forgive? I'm supposed to forgive like Him. See, Peter was looking for a rule, and Jesus wanted to say, no, you need to look for a relationship. You, need a, you want to understand what forgiveness is, you need to let it be defined by the relationship you have with me. You're a part of this family, you're a part of this business, and you need to forgive others the way that you have been forgiven. So, to forgive like Jesus, I need to work from his definition of, of forgiveness, not mine. Gary had six points here. I'm going to try to fly through these. Because I think they're all good. God defines forgiveness as, number one, one of His defining characteristics. This speaks to that whole family resemblance thing we were talking about. Micah, chapter 7, verse 18. The prophet said, Who is a God like you who pardons wrongdoing and passes over a rebellious act of the remnant of His possession? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in mercy. In Luke, we're told that God is rich in mercy. And here's how I understand that. I don't know if I'm right about this or not, but I think I'm close. You use your own judgment. If you're rich in something and you delight in giving it away because that's what mercy is about, something you give, it means you got so much of it, you can't wait to give it away. That's our God. He is rich in mercy. 
And it's one of the defining things of His character. God wants to be merciful. He wants to forgive. He enjoys nothing more. Well, than than forgiving. I'll let that stand. Uh, God defines forgiveness as number two, and as necessary in a fallen, sinful world. Forgiveness is necessary in this messy place we live. It's for, it's necessary in this messy church we have. You know, we are just enough alike and just enough different to totally aggravate the snot out of each other. Am I right? Just enough alike and just enough difference to drive each other crazy. You know, why is he doing that again? Why does she keep saying that? You know, those kinds of things happen in churches and in families. And we can divide over these things. Over the smallest of things. I've seen churches split because someone painted the bathrooms a color they didn't appreciate. I know, man, that sounds pretty trivial, but I bet you've got worse stories than that. And they refuse to forgive. Who told you you could do that? You know, that kind of a thing. God defines forgiveness as something that is necessary because we live in a fallen, sinful world. Jesus said in Luke 17, 1-5, through things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. He's acknowledging it is not a matter of if someone will offend you. It's a question of when. Now, he also wants to be sure that we understand as his followers, we better not be the ones who are giving the offense and offering to offend. Because if we cause someone to stumble, it's millstone time. You, you remember the rest of what Jesus said there? You'd be better off to have a millstone, which is this huge rock, tied around your neck, and then you cast into the sea. I think he's saying it upsets him a bit whenever we cause people to stumble. But the fact that we live in a sinful, fallen world where people are going to be trying, or even just innocently, offering to offend us without even knowing it, that is a given. He says in verse 3, So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. You know what the apostles' response to that was? Increase our faith. Jesus set the bar pretty high, don't you think? But it's necessary that we forgive because we are in this kind of a world. So why do you think Jesus would put something so difficult on us as this? This is not easy, is it? Now, I believe if you keep reading there in Luke 17, Jesus will paint a picture. He's going to tell you a little bit about a servant. A servant doesn't get the big head and think that whenever he's done what he's supposed to do, that he deserves a ticker tape parade. And the whole lecture is about, we need to see God as big and ourselves as small. We need to take God very seriously and ourselves not so much. And the reality is, is whenever I'm offended and I'm holding a grudge, it's almost like a teeter-totter. Where have I got God whenever I'm offended at another brother or sister? And where have I got myself? High and mighty. And that is not the attitude of a servant, which is what we are. The attitude of a servant is, who am I? God is everything. I keep Him high. I have to see myself as an unprofitable servant. If I cannot see myself as that, I'm not going to forgive like He does. And I'm going to hold grudges. Why would Jesus lean into this teaching on forgiveness so strongly? Because Jesus is fixing what's broken in our world. And here's the exciting part. It's not that He's going to fix it someday. He has already begun fixing it. It's already in progress. There are signs of health and healing and restoration all over this world. And we have more 
good things in this world today than there were 2,000 years ago when he first got here. Because the kingdom of God has been growing. He came to heal even the worst relationships. Even the most difficult relationships we have. How many of you have a difficult relationship that has not been redeemed? See, I believe that this lesson strikes right at the heart of every one of us. It's like like a big, dead, dirty fish at your doorstep. I mean, it's right there. And it's at every one of our houses. We've all had those relationships that just stink to high heaven. And not many of us have really latched on to what it means to forgive. Let God define what forgiveness means so that that smell can be removed. So that that broken relationship can be mended. Number three. God defines forgiveness as the releasing of a debt. Sometimes, and and I found this to be my experience, there was a time where I had trouble forgiving just because I didn't really even understand what I was being asked to do. I was operating, operating off the culture that I grew up in and the norms inside my family. Which, shock of all shocks, I found out is not exactly God's idea of forgiveness. How about you? And what it is, it's the releasing of a debt. Matthew 6, 20, I'm sorry, 6 verse 12. It's the Lord's Prayer. It should be very familiar to us. In that prayer, Jesus told us to say things like, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtor. Now that's challenging enough, but what do I understand forgiveness to be? What does he mean when Remember, I say forgive as I've been forgiven. Well, the Greek word that's used there is used 143 times in the New Testament. 127 of those uses are in the four Gospels. Apparently, Jesus really wanted to drive this message home. And he wanted to use this word to get it across. And you understand the original languages, they don't always meet up perfectly with our English modern words and how we use them, right? So the word is afiemi. I think that's how you would pronounce it. It means forsake, to lay aside, to leave it, to put or send it away. One of the best ways to understand what a word means is to see it in context. Here's a verse that you may not have thought of having that word in it. It's in Revelation 2, verse 4. Jesus said this to the church. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken. That's the word. That's a fee. You have forsaken the love you had at first. See, we would not necessarily translate that as forgiven. You know, we wouldn't swap out forsaken for forgiven because we don't think of that word that way, right? You have forgiven the love you had at first. That doesn't sound right to our ears, does it? Forsaken does because forsaken means I've left it behind. Jesus was telling this church, you've left behind your love for me. You've walked away from it. It wasn't a good thing. But it's the very same word he uses whenever he says that we must forgive. And that we're to pray, Father, forgive us. We forgive other people. We're releasing of a debt and we're walking away from it. Someone offends us mightily. Someone hurts us. Someone betrays us. Fill in in how many other things there could be there. What we're tempted to do and what our society encourages us to do is to walk away from them. But what Jesus is asking us to do is to forgive it, which means to take that offense and walk away from that offense. To cancel the debt, to stop requiring the person to make it right. To quit punishing them. How many times in marriages someone's offended and they want payback? They want to punish the other spouse so they learn to never do it again. And that is not forgiveness. We're supposed to walk away from that sin. We're supposed to forgive it. 
Let me tell you something. And it took me a while. Someone else had to tell me about this, and then I wanted to argue that it wasn't right, but of course it is. So I'm going to share it with you. If you keep reliving an offense, you haven't forgiven it. If you keep bringing it up to the person or to somebody else, you have not forgiven it. Because by the very definition, I'm supposed to be walking away from it and leaving it. And instead, what I'm doing is I've just put it like a biker's wallet. I put it on a chain and I'm walking around dragging it with me. And I keep bringing it up. That's not, you haven't forgiven. There have been times where I thought I had forgiven something only to find myself mowing the yard mad, angry, having this speech rolling around in my head, reliving something that somebody did to me 40 years ago. People that are no longer alive. And I'm mad. Mowing along. Sound like I've forgiven it? No. Not by the definition. Not from the heart. That's where Jesus set the standard. From the heart. I haven't forgiven it if I keep reliving it and I keep bringing it up. So as a clue as to whether or not you've bought this lie about defining forgiveness on your own terms, ask yourself, do I keep reliving an offense? Do I keep bringing it up? Do I talk to that person about it? Or do I talk to other people about that person and what they did? If I keep talking about it, I haven't forgiven it yet. And of course what Jesus said is, if you don't forgive... I'm not going to forgive you. He makes it very clear to me. I don't know any other way to look at that verse and I hate it. Because it sounds like my forgiveness is conditional upon my being like Him and forgiving like He does. So let me tell you, if you're reliving stuff and hanging on to stuff, you haven't walked away from it, you should be alarmed. I know it alarms me. Because I need forgiveness bad. And so it just gets my attention. I've got to do something. I'm forgiven on the condition that I forgive others. That's what Matthew 18, 23-35 is about. And I'm supposed to look past the one who owes me and see Jesus. Okay. I want you to do something real quick. Maybe you've done this before. Hold up your finger like this. This finger. <laughs> like this. And look at somebody. Put put this in between you and that person. I'm going to focus on Bob. Now, i got my finger between me and Bob. If I focus on my finger, if you focus on your finger, what happens to the person behind it? They kind of fade out of, you can't really see them, right? You might even not see them at all. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you a thing about Bob right now. I can tell you he's back there, and you're right, there are two of him. He's wearing a red shirt. But I can't really tell you too much about it because I'm focused on my finger. Now, keep your finger there. Focus on the person. What happens to the finger? Son of a gun. Almost becomes invisible. You can see right through your finger. Now there's one of Bob and two of my finger, but I can tell Bob's smiling at me. It's the simplest illustration I know to explain what we're supposed to do when we forgive. Here's the offense. As bad as it was, as hurtful as it was, and I put that right in front of Jesus. Now I got a choice. Who am I going to focus on? I'm going to focus on Jesus or my finger. The one I focus on makes the other disappear. It's true. When you get mad and you refuse to forgive, how clearly do you see Jesus? I've had people do some horrible things to me, and by God's grace, I wish this was universally true of everybody that's ever done something bad to me, but I can only think of a couple of examples where God has granted me the ability to do what I just said, and I don't think about what they did to me anymore. I just see Jesus. 
Now, like I said, I wish that was 100% true of everybody who's ever offended me. It's not even 2% true of the total volume, I, I would guess. Because I'm still working on this too, so I'm preaching to me. Like I said, this wasn't my lesson. If I had picked out a lesson, I would have maybe tried to choose something I wasn't struggling with. But it was Gary's lesson, and like as not, he wrote it for me. So here I am. <laughs> and uh, I, I think it's pretty common, but I hope that helps you to get an idea of, okay, wait a second, this can be done, and this is what I have to do. Number four, God defines forgiveness as the removal of barriers to relationship. If you haven't forgiven, if someone's hurt you, betrayed you, offended you, how close are you to them? There's a barrier, right? Without forgiveness, the wall stays there. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Isaiah said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our sins, every one of us, put a wall up that we couldn't dig under, we couldn't climb over, we couldn't break through, that separated us from God. God was not satisfied to let that barrier remain there. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20, Paul said this, he said, all this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry. There's the family business. The family business of the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ. Not counting people's sins against them. Oh, if we could ever become a people that would stop holding grudges and holding people's sins over their heads. We're not there yet, but we need to get there. He says, and has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. How would you, how impressed would you be with a nation if their ambassador came in and he was ticked at you? Wouldn't be friendly to you. Hated the people at his embassy. Refused to talk to them. Would you want to be a part of that country? No. That sounds perfectly awful. And yet that's what we do. When we refuse to forgive, we're His ambassadors. We make Him look like a failure, and He's not. We make His kingdom look like a joke, and it's not. He says, uh, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. And we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Point number five here. God defines forgiveness as Vital to restoring a broken relationship. In 2 Corinthians 2, 5-8, through 8, Paul said, Now if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. If you know what's going on there in the context, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is talking, you gotta get this guy to leave. Yeah, you gotta run him out of your church. I hate that language. I've, I've had to ask people to leave our church before. It made me sick to my stomach to do it. But that's how we're supposed to act. Remember, people will not call themselves Christians and will not repent of an obvious public sin. And that's what's going on with this guy. It was a sexual sin. He was sleeping with a woman that either was his stepmother or his birth mother. We don't know. It was his father's wife. And the church was feeling pretty good about themselves, like, this is gross. Even the world around us says, this is gross. And look how much we can accept even the dirtiest of sinners. He's a part of us. And Paul's like, you're out of your mind. What are you doing? You gotta put this guy out. You can't let him be a part of you. You'll shame the Lord. You'll incur his wrath. 
move him. But it wasn't to just get the bad apple out of the basket before he pollutes everybody else. It was so that he would see what it was like to be without God's people. And it worked. And it worked. He came to his senses. And this passage I just read to you was written addressing the man who had repented. And what's supposed to happen with the relationship? It's supposed to be restored. I've known people in churches that would whisper about the adulterer who repented years after they repented. I remember being a little kid and uh, someone t- you know, whispering to me about a man who was trying to get his life straight. He had divorced his first wife, was married to a new wife. And in the 70s, that was a bigger deal than it is today. But this guy was trying to get involved with helping the youth. My parents didn't want me to be around him. Because you know. You can't have restored relationships and hold grudges and offenses. And isn't it funny how sometimes we hold on to offenses that were not aimed at us. They did nothing to us and we're still mad about it. We weren't personally harmed and we're still mad about it. Number six. God defines uh, defines forgiveness as defense against our real enemy. Our real enemies are not the people who hurt us. Sometimes it's the power behind those people. Second Corinthians five, I'm sorry, two five through eight says, "Now if anyone has caused pain, I'm sorry, <laughs> wrong place." Second Corinthians five verse ten through eleven. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. See, the real enemy is the devil. And what Paul's calling for us to do here is to not be ignorant of what he's doing. That's why over this series we've been talking about look, this is why this is how he plays. This is his go-to, deceitful ideas. He's going to have deceitful ideas that play to your disordered desires, and the world around you will tell you that they're right. We don't, he doesn't want us to be ignorant about this. In Matthew 18, 34, in his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he's owed. Jailers, in other translations, is rendered as tormentors. Our real enemy is the devil, not another human being. He's the power behind our enemies. Let's put it that way. We need to deal with the real enemy. And forgiveness is our own only real defense against. So I've got to wrap this up. How can I forgive like Jesus? Number one, you've got to accept his forgiveness, his definition of forgiveness. It really starts with that. We have to accept that He is right about this. He's right about everything. But His, his definition is the one we've got to embrace. Number two, got to look past the offense and see Jesus. That's that finger trick I was showing you. See, whenever someone else... If, if I bought Don Yoder, let's just say he was on the auction block and I could... I could I could buy Don. I had an extra 25 bucks and I wasn't doing nothing and Don's kind of handy. So, so I buy Don. I bought all of him. He's mine. And let's just say that, uh, Sheila, you owe Don $250. Don, who does she really owe that $250 to now that I bought you? No, sir. (laughs) I know we all go that way, don't we? But the reality is, if I bought you, then I bought that debt. She owes me. Now, if we actually took from 25 to 25 million, I paid 25 million for you. How upset are you about the 250? A little less. Maybe you don't get upset at all. I'm stretching here to try to find a way to say, when Christ bought you, 
He not only bought all your sins that you had against Him, not only did He forgive all that and all the other blessings that comes from it, He also bought everything that ever was owed to you and everything else that ever would be owed to you. If we don't want to be that servant, that wicked servant in Matthew 18, we got to learn to understand this is not mine to demand payment on anymore. This God will collect on that debt. I don't have to. And it is freeing for me. Uh, there were two different kind of paper routes in my little burg that I grew up in. I grew up in a little very, very, very town, very, very small town, very rural. And one of the few jobs that was available to a kid underage was delivering papers. The Carmine Times, which was a local newspaper, and the Evansville Courier and Press, which was a big fat newspaper that paid great. The real big difference between delivering these two is the Evansville Courier and Press collected the debt from the customers. The Carmine Times made the paper boys collect. And you'd be surprised how many times a 10-year-old on a three-speed bicycle intimidates a man in a trailer. I'd be knocking and they would not... They would not come to the door. They wouldn't pay. I had some deadbeat customers, and I remember one time owing the Carmi Times $50, which in 1976, that's a lot of money. And I was scared to death. It was such a burden trying to collect a debt from people who refused to pay. Now, if I had worked for the Evansville Courier and Press, I wouldn't have had to worry about it. They might have still owed the money, but it wasn't for me to collect. And those carriers... Had a, had a freer existence, enjoyed their job a little bit more than I did. And yet, this is the difference that we sometimes do. We think it's up to us to collect on the things that are owed us. They owe God now, not me. God will collect that. He'll deal with it far better than I ever could. But whenever I say, no, I'm going to collect too, things get bad in a hurry. So we've got to let God, we've got to accept His definition of forgiveness and we've got to look past the offense to see Jesus. And lastly, you've got to pray for your enemies. You've got to pray for them. And I would suggest that while you're praying, you tell God what's good about them. In Luke 6, verse 27, Jesus says, love your enemies. By the way, there's, I think there's a definition of who your enemies are here. We know they're not the ultimate enemies. No human is. But Jesus nonetheless acknowledges that we have enemies. And who are they? They're the ones who hate you. Does anybody here have somebody who hates them? I got a few I could share. (laughs) If you guys really don't have anybody that hates you, I'd be glad to give you one of the hundreds. (laughs) Anyway, those who hate you. Those who curse you. What does it mean to curse you? Say bad things about you. Anybody here have anybody that says bad things about them? Wishes you ill. Again, I got a list of those, so anybody that's not, I don't see any hands, so anybody that needs some of these, I'd be glad to share. Uh, and those who mistreat you. Anybody got somebody here who mistreats you? Those are your enemies, folks. And how are we supposed to deal with them? Well, we love our enemies. We're supposed to do good to those who hate us. This is hard. It's hard to do good to people who want to do you harm. But that's what Jesus tells us to do. He says to bless those who curse you. When they say bad things about us, we're supposed to say good things about them. And we're supposed to pray for those who mistreat you. I find it much easier to do good to someone who hates me than it is to say good things about them. Personal confession, this is hard for me. Because in most of my internal language and external language, I'm always making my case against them. Whenever I do that, I have not forgiven. I'm like that little kid still trying to collect a debt that I no longer is owed to me. And I feel miserable. And I get tortured and worked up and I don't represent Christ, and I'm not knocking down walls, I start building them back up. It all starts going bad. Here's what I've learned 
was talking with a friend about that this just this week. Whenever I recognize, and this is part of the struggle, recognizing that this is going on, that I haven't forgiven, some, forgiven something, I need to pray for those who mistreated me. And while I'm praying, I'm going to practice, and this was my commitment with this friend because we were both struggling with some, some different unforgiveness issues. And so our commitment was every time we start to relive, you know, that 70 times 7 sounds like a, like a whole lot of forgiveness, but if someone does something to you once and you think about it a thousand times, how many times have they, do, they done it to you? A thousand times. So literally, the number of times you have to forgive can get pretty big pretty quick. And so our commitment was to practice what Jesus is saying here, and I'm passing it on to you guys, sharing it with you. Try it, because I've seen this work for me with some relationships. It's hard work. But whenever I start to relive it, whenever it starts bubbling up inside of me, I know I haven't forgiven it yet. I'm stopping right then, and I'm going to God, and I'm praying for them, and then I'm trying to tell God what I see in them that is good. Oh, is this hard? Because I really want, and, and I'm not good at it. Sometimes I find myself, yeah, God, well, you know, they're, you know, they, they don't dress bad, and you know, but they just, they're awful to me. <laughs> you know? I start rehearsing my, and I'm not gonna quit that, gotta quit that, and I gotta start thinking about what's good about them. See, I'm blessing those who curse. And I'm doing it while I'm praying for those that mistreat. And you know what has happened to me whenever I've done this before with different people? I stop looking at the finger. Now whenever I see them, I don't think about what they did anymore. And the relationship has been redeemed. It's been restored. And I have freedom. I'm the one that was set free, not necessarily the other person. So I would encourage you to think about this. Accept Jesus' definition. Look past the offense to Jesus. And when you start to relive it and think about it, you need to get on your knees right then and start practicing this. Tell God what's good about that person. Ask Him to help you forgive and see if it doesn't change. He's depending on us to take over in this family business, to join in it and to be a part of it. Everything rides on this. We're His kingdom. We're His people. We've got to get good at forgiving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You again for allowing us to come to You together in Your name. Uh, Father, I pray that You'll help us to stop ignoring what You've commanded about forgiveness. It's too easy to make excuses. But You haven't made forgiveness optional. You've staked your reputation, at least to some extent, on how we forgive. So, Father, I'm asking you to please teach us to forgive like you've forgiven us. Father, we need your grace. We need your grace, your influence on our hearts to make us want to do this. Father, this isn't the kind of thing that we should be feeling a burden that we have to do. It's the kind of thing we should feel a desire that we want to do for your sake. To please you and to see your kingdom grow. Father, we all have difficult and broken relationships. This is a difficult lesson to teach. I have so many of them of my my own. Father, uh, there's only so much that we can do to bring reconciliation, but we must do what we can do, and it starts with forgiveness. You want to redeem all those relationships, and we can't make it happen any other way than your way. Father, uh, help us to replace the lie that we can define forgiveness our way with the truth, that we can and must define forgiveness your way. And it's in Jesus' name we're praying. Amen.